Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the grace that you have shown to us. We thank you for your love and your kindness and what you have accomplished on the cross to provide a means for us to be forgiven and to live changed lives. We pray that as we listen to your word today, that all of us here will truly get something out of this that we might grow and that we might serve you and that we might reach out to those in our community. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been a while since I've been up here. It's always nice to get back. The last time I spoke, we looked at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 to 28. In that section, we saw that as Christians, we live under a better covenant. This covenant is between the Father and the Son on our behalf. This covenant was sealed when Christ died on the cross. At that time, my sins and your sins were imputed or put on Jesus. In other words, when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because my sins were there. My sins and your sins were being judged by a righteous and holy God. Throughout his life, Jesus lived out the perfect righteousness. He was holy. He was obedient. He was patient. He showed love to all he met. And he never compromised his integrity. When we come to Christ for forgiveness, he is there to forgive. He also imputes his righteousness to us. In other words, where we were impatient, He covers it with his patience. Where we were hateful or spiteful, he covers it with his love. In all our iniquities, he covers us with his righteousness. He also puts this righteous nature inside of us, giving us the power to break the cycle of sin. We must always remember that anything we do that truly can be called good is because his nature is in us, giving us the power to live righteously. Hebrews 8.1 starts out with this phrase. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. From this, what we see, the author is going to review the main points he covered concerning Christ as our great high priest. 
George Guthrie, in his book, Hebrews, the Niv Application Commentary, says this. A good preacher knows when to sum up where the sermon has been and where it is going. Such a moment in the address allows the hearers to get their bearings and continue to track with the speaker. The first two verses of this section present us with a well-crafted but simple use of this oratorial device and offer us an opportunity to take stock of where we are in the book. So here, I have titled this message, Let Us Review, and that's because that is what the author of the book is doing. Paul uses the word therefore in a lot of his epistles. Probably every one of them has the word therefore many times. He uses this as a means to look back at what he just wrote and draw a logical conclusion to his argument or lead the readers to understand that if what he just said is true, there must be some reaction on their part. That's not what the preacher is doing here. He's going back over old ground, restating and expanding on what he just said. He's not drawing this logical conclusion. In other words, he's saying the same thing, but in a different way, and adding to it. The preacher is actually doing two very important things in this chapter. First, he's allowing the reader to catch up. So he's not left behind so that we can fully grasp what he just finished saying. Second, he is stressing the importance of the topic. Remember, when the Bible says something and repeats it, it's because it's important. God wants us to get it. He wants us to understand. So he repeats what he just said. And that's what's going on here. Now with this outline here, we see here that this actually, this subject actually starts in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, where he introduces the topic with Jesus is our great high priest. And then he continues on in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, 28, which we just finished up, with this aspect that Jesus is a superior high priest. And if we looked at, and if we remember, looking at chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, he was taken from among humans and appointed. God appointed him. He didn't get the high priest as the normal means. He wasn't born a high priest. We then look at his exhortation in chapter 5, verses 11 through 620, where 
we saw that we must carefully watch as we press on. And that was based on the implications of what he was and who he is, or what he is and who he is as our high priest. And then he goes on in chapter 7, verses 1 to 8, and stresses the superiority of Melchizedek. Melchizedek being that type of Christ, that picture that foreshadowed Christ. So few verses were mentioned of him in the book of Genesis. And yet, so much is devoted to that very short passage of Scripture. First, a couple of verses in Psalms, and then Hebrews deals extensively with the implications of what's going on. And then he continues on in chapter 7, verses 11 to 28. And he said, Jesus is our Melchizedekian high priest. Then we see, starting here, that we have a new thing going on here. He's saying, we have such a high priest. Here he's giving a review and he's saying, this positive assertion that all that he said about Jesus as the high priest and how he's superior to the high priests in the Old Testament and under the Old Covenant, that we have this high priest. He's reassuring us. He's saying, this is what's going on. We do have him. And verses 1 and 2, he says, he is our minister in heaven. The high priests of the Old Testament never went to heaven to be high priest. They didn't go to heaven to offer the sacrifice. They went to the temple. And then in chapter 8, verse 3, through chapter 10, verse 18, we see this, that he continues on with the superiority of the appointed high priest. Verses 8, 3 to 6, he is superior in his ministry, or his ministry is superior. And chapter 8, 7 through 13, we see his superior covenant. Then we see the superior, superiority of the New Covenant, which starts in chapter 9, verse 1, and it continues on through chapter 10, verse 18. And then we see that we have a great high priest who takes us to heaven. Remember how Paul said we are or have been seated in heavenly places in Christ? This isn't something future. This is something that we have right now. That he has taken us to heaven with him. That he is ministering. Now, physically, I'm here. Positionally, it is a slightly different thing where when God sees me, he sees that I am already there. He has a different perspective because I have turned to Christ. 
Now Guthrie points out here that chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, and chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, form brackets around this section of, of this topic here. That he is starting it off by introducing him as our high priest and then ending it by saying, he is our high priest who takes us to heaven. That's a large section of this book that is dealing with this one basic topic of Jesus being our high priest. So obviously, the author of Hebrews, God ultimately, considers this to be a very important topic. So we look at Hebrews 8, verses 1 and 2, and it says this. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. In this transition, the preacher sums up all he just said in the previous chapters with saying, such a high priest. That phrase is full. He says, we have such a high priest. What is he saying? He's looking back at everything he said between chapter 4 and chapter 8. And he's enclosing that in this phrase, saying, we have such a high priest. Then he continues and says, he has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne. Remember, this place is as Paul described in Ephesians 1, 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's where Jesus is as our minister. There's nothing below him. Uh, nothing above him, I'm sorry. Everything is below him. All future events, he is in control of. All past events, he was in control of. Everything, he is above it. He is there as our minister. Continuing in Hebrews 8, 3 to 6, we read, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve 
a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. Remember when Moses went up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, he didn't just get the Ten Commandments. He got the pattern for the tabernacle, the pattern for all of what was going on. It was all given to him. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he also is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Here we see that Jesus is a priest completely set apart from the Old Testament priests on the basis of three things. First, the offering was made in a better location. He made his offering in the tabernacle at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. Christ presented his sacrifice directly to the Father. There was nothing between him and the Father when he made his sacrifice. Second, his sacrifice was of a better substance. Verse 5 says, The offerings and sacrifices according to the law served as a copy and shadow of heavenly things. When Jesus presented his own blood as a sacrifice for our sins, it was that offering that the Old Testament sacrifices foreshadowed. Third, his sacrifice brought about a better covenant enacted on better promises. Luke 22, 19 and 20, Jesus at the Last Supper, and he's instituting the communion here. And he says this, And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Every time we celebrate communion, we are celebrating this better covenant Jesus died to provide. This Thursday, while I was driving to the Veterans Administration in Bath, I was listening to R.C. Sproul, and something he said reminded me of the suffering Jesus went through so I would not have to suffer eternal loss. It wasn't the crown of thorns that was rammed onto his head or the scourging he suffered or even the nails being pounded through his hands and feet that caused the most suffering. 
No, it was when my sins were imputed unto him. It was when the Father could no longer look at Jesus. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was my sin that caused that pain. It was our sin. And I say my sin. Each one of us should internalize it and understand. It was my sin. He who knew no sin faced that terrible judgment so I wouldn't have to. And it, it just struck me. I would never have to suffer what Jesus suffered. I would never have to face what Jesus faced because he did it for me. That is humbling and something that just, there are words that cannot, uh, there are no words that can describe the, the understanding of, of what that means in our lives. It cannot be put into words how much He has done for us. There are many times we don't fully grasp all that He has done for us. And yet every time we celebrate communion, we are celebrating this great gift He has given to us. This gift that we don't deserve and that we can't even begin to comprehend the suffering that he went through to pay for it. Hebrews 8, 7 continues by saying, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. And verses 8 and 9 tell us it was the people that caused this need. Verse 8 says, For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will erect, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And I did not care for them, says the Lord. His people did not continue in this covenant, so he was going to provide a better covenant based on better promises. Chapter 8, verse 10 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. First, God is going to give 
those in the new covenant an understanding of the law. Second, God is going to put in their hearts to do his law. Third, he is going to establish a different kind of relationship with his people. These promises have to do with righteousness in the understanding, in the doing, and in the being. How does he accomplish this? Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in whom you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. By placing his spirit in us, he made us into new creatures. A key component of this is we are now righteous because he put his righteousness on us. And we are righteous because he put his nature inside us. There's two things going on there. He clothes us with his righteousness to cover past sins and current sins. But he puts a righteous nature in us for the power to do the righteous things. Romans eight fourteen to 17 say, For who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. We see here, his spirit is testifying with our spirit. That's putting his law in our minds. His spirit is in us. And now his spirit informs us as to what is righteous and what is not righteous. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, it says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now, much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Boy, that's an interesting phrase. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he continues in verse 13, and he says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here we see that the spirit he has placed in us gives us both the desire and the power to do those things that are righteous. This is the better promise that he's talking about here in Hebrews. In Hebrews 8, verses 11 and 12, it says, 
And they will not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Here we see the foundation undergirding our Christian faith. This is rooted in God's mercy and forgiveness. Before we came to Christ for forgiveness, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. There was nothing we could do to fix it. There was no desire even to seek after God. Praise God, he came looking for me as the shepherd went looking for that one lost sheep. Now that I am saved, I can say, I know him as all who have trusted in Christ. A personal, intimate relationship. That is also part of this better promise. There is one fundamental difference between the old covenant and the new. The old was about living out righteousness by means of external pressure of the law. Everything was about obeying God's commands. If you should slip, well, you need to go to the priest for sacrifice. It was all like trying to press myself into a cookie-cutter shape of the righteous life. On the other hand, the new covenant is all about being transformed from within. As Paul said, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In closing, I wanted to read this from the the commentary that I've been using. And it's titled, The Externalization of Christianity. There seems to be an incessant pressure towards what might be called the externalization of Christianity, in which the moral dimension of the faith becomes defined wholly in terms of external activities, neglecting dynamics of the inner life. The contrast, writes Richard Foster, between God's way of doing things and our way is never more acute than in this area of human change and transformation. We focus on specific actions. God focuses on us. We work from the outside in. God works from the inside out. We try. God transforms. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. All of that is from within a natural fruit of my relationship, the Holy Spirit bringing that out in me. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you that you have provided a means for us to be changed. We pray that you'll help us to more fully understand this change in our lives, that each day we will seek to be more and more like you, that we will seek a deeper and more personal relationship with you. For as we draw close to you, you draw close to us and you change us. As we see your holiness, we can also reflect it in our lives. And we pray that you'll give us the power and the grace to do just that, that we might walk as your ambassador in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.